Genesis chapter 17. If you've got one of the Red Pew Bibles, you'll find this on page, seven, uh, page 16. Page 16, and we're going to read the first uh, 14 verses. Genesis 17, page 16 of the Pew Bibles, reading from verse 1. We remember this is God's Word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You're to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who's not been circumcised in the flesh, will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Well, as we approach this subject of baptism, I am, a, I am aware that we have lots of different opinions, and uh, we do have tea and coffee after the service, and the, the trolleys will come out, and the tea and coffee will be served. And uh, if you have any questions, which I'm sure there will be plenty, you can speak to me or speak to Nigel. We would love to to spend the evening to the little hours of the morning discussing baptism with you all. There's some books here that I'm going to refer to. They'll be up on the table here, and if you want to, you can have a little look at those, uh, and we can uh, talk over them. One to highlight, I think that's really, really helpful, is this small little book by a guy called Jason Herlopoulos. Uh, it's about 10 pounds, and there's a question and answer section at the back of it, and it's worth it just for that question and answer section. Now, there are lots of things that I'm not going to cover tonight because we only have a limited time. Uh, so, the mode of baptism and various other issues around baptism, we're not going to cover. But we're going to look at the foundations of baptism, and then we're going to look at the marks of baptism, and then we're going to apply it uh, to our lives. So, as Nigel said, there are people on both sides of this debate, really good people on both sides of this debate. So, if we look at the Christian world, you'll see Alistair Begg and John Piper, who are both Baptist in their convictions. And then you'll see uh, Tim Keller, Kevin DeYoung, 
uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, the late R.C. Sproul, Brian Chappell, Sinclair Ferguson, who are of this covenantal view, this uh, view of baptism of infants. And just to give you a little bit of background, although I was brought up a Presbyterian, I didn't believe in this. I hadn't had it explained. Here's a confession. I hadn't had it explained, or, or I didn't believe in it until about the age of 22. I took the GCSE version of baptism, believe and be baptized, learned it off for the exams, and that was all that I had sort of in my theological locker. And then a godly brother came alongside and said, John, if you're going to be a Presbyterian minister, you might need to do a little bit more reading on this. And, uh, and then we started to explore the real meaning of what it means to come and have infant baptism. So a quote's going to come up on the screen from Martin Luther. And Luther said this, talking about infant baptism, if this baptism is wrong, then for that long period of Christendom, it would have been without baptism. And if it were without baptism, it would not be Christendom. What Martin Luther's trying to say here is that if, if infant baptism is wrong, and it's been the practice of the church for generation after generation after generation, then we would have no longer been under Christendom because we would have lost baptism altogether from our church. So as we start to edge our way into this, I think this is one of the most beautiful doctrines in all of Scripture. Whenever we start to get a handle on this, because what does it reveal to us? It reveals who our God is and how He treats us, how He relates to us, and the beauty of that, and the beauty of how He treats little ones and children. So the Westminster Confession of Faith, which as Presbyterians is the document, the framework that we have in the background, the Westminster Confession of Faith states in chapter 28 that baptism is not only for those who actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. So how do we get to that point? Hopefully by the end of tonight, we will understand how we can say that and confess that in the confession of faith. But as we start to talk about baptism, what happens? The Baptist digs into their trench and the Presbyterian digs into their trench and they both load their muskets and the Baptists discharge their weapon and say, well, here's the verse, believe and be baptized, clearly you're wrong. And the Presbyterian, he takes out his musket and he says, well, we look at the Old Testament and he fires off his shots uh, and the two kind of meet in the middle and there's no ground to try and meet each other or to have a constructive conversation. So what we want to do tonight is to, to wipe away all of the, the, dirt, the dirt and dust off the table before we start to build back on. And as we build back on, we want to do slowly and carefully. And with this, we come to our first point. God reveals himself through the covenant of grace. God reveals himself through the covenant of grace. Now, what is the covenant of grace? Imagine this. Imagine that uh, we're all the way on a church day to Port Stewart, and it's lovely and sunny, and Nigel's there. Nigel has a pair of fancy Ray-Bans on, and some of the elders there, and they're sporting some aviators, and somebody else is there, and they've got a lovely pair of Polaroid sunglasses. And then there's the rest of us who just have a five-pound pair from TK Maxx, right? Well, we're all looking down the beach, 
And as we look through our glasses, it's all slightly different. What Nigel sees, what some of the elders see through their aviators, what some of us see, it's all slightly different. The, The color is slightly different. And as we come to the subject of baptism, what do we need to do? Well, we need to replace our lenses, and we need to look at Scripture through the lens of covenant. Now, this might be new language for you. What does this mean? Well, it means that God has revealed Himself through covenants. He comes to Adam post the fall, and He gives him this covenant. And then we come to Abraham, and God folds out another covenant, what we have read. And then to Moses, another covenant. And then to David, another covenant. And then with Christ, the new covenant. So these are slightly different. They they unfold on one another. But they all come under one banner called the covenant of grace. So Jonty Rhodes one of our good friends. Jonty has written a book, and I have it here, on the covenants. Covenants made simple, okay? So, if this is new language for you, this is really helpful. There's lots of little diagrams in it, and really, really helpful for us. But here's how Jonty describes covenant. He says it's a relationship between two parties. It's a bond, an agreement. And he says this, it's an agreement between God and human beings, where God promises blessing if the conditions are kept, or threatens curses if the conditions are broken. So, this is our working definition. What is a covenant? If that language is new for you tonight, this is what we're trying to put into place, that God comes and He reveals Himself through covenant. That means that He makes an agreement between Himself and human beings. Not to confuse you, tonight I hope this will not confuse you, we talk about in the Reformed faith three covenants, okay? There's the covenant of redemption. That is between the Father and the Son in eternity past. We will not talk about that tonight. Then there's the covenant of works that Adam experiences as he arrives into the garden. We will not talk about that covenant tonight. But then after the fall comes the covenant of grace, this one covenant that starts there and continues right the way through to the Lord Jesus Christ and which we are under today. So, what we see in Scripture is that God has progressively folded Himself out, covenant after covenant, showing us more of Himself. So, let's chart this. We'll we'll chart it with Abraham to begin with. Abraham, Genesis 17, verse 4 says this, Behold, we have heard this already, Behold, my covenant is with you. This is the diagram. My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be their God. So, he comes and makes this, God comes and makes this covenant with Abraham, but it's for him and his offspring. Then he comes to Moses, Exodus 19 and verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, 
And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Again, it's for Moses and his offspring. Then to David, 2 Samuel 7 and verses 8 through 17, but we'll zoom in in verse 12. I will raise up your offspring after you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so, as we, as we take a little glimpse into these covenants, what do we see? Well, we should see the grace of God. We should be stunned at how good our God is. Not that He just pledges to the individual, but to their seed, to generation after generation after generation. His arms gradually opening and opening and opening. And this is important for us to note that every covenant, every covenant that was made, was made between the individual and their seed. So, Sinclair Ferguson. Sinclair Ferguson says this, the believer in biblical terms would find that a definitive of a covenant. That which does not include the believer's seed would not be a covenant. That which does not include the seed would not be a covenant. So to fast forward, and we will get there, but as we look at Christ, whenever he says this is the new covenant, it has to include the seed. Every covenant in the history of Scripture all the way through has included the seed. And so whenever Christ comes, of course it would include the seed. You see, everything that we have in the New Testament is found in the Old. Sometimes we get lost, don't we? Sometimes we get lost in Scripture, and it's very hard to make our way around it. What we're trying to do this evening is to, is to put up the drone, if you like, and to see the big sweep of the Bible. This is redemptive history working. Jesus working through the pages of Scripture. God unfolding Himself for us, revealing Himself to us. And then he ultimately, God ultimately reveals himself to us in Jesus Christ, who is the new covenant. And therefore, it also includes the seed. So, if these little blocks into place, come with me to Acts and to Acts chapter 2. Because in Acts chapter 2, as we have, as we have rattled through the Old Testament, we arrive into Acts chapter 2, and there Jesus has given permission to the disciples to inaugurate the new covenant. So, Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. So, Acts chapter 2 in verse 37. This is the transition period, okay? This is the transition period from one to the next, to the next unfolding of the covenant. Verse 37, Peter's just preached. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And so, do we see this? At the, at the moment of the change of administrations in the covenant, as it unfolds again, at the transition, there is renewal and emphasis of the exact words that were given to Abraham. Peter knows what he is doing here. He is showing that there is continuity, not discontinuity between the covenants. Continuity, not discontinuity. So, here we have the foundations of baptism. As we look at the covenant of grace in the Old Testament, and then as we see the sign of the, of the covenant given, that's our second point, the marks of baptism. God gives us a sign and a seal of this covenant of grace. He gives us a sign and a seal. To the people that are under his possession, what does the Lord do? He gives them a sign. And the sign in the Old Testament is circumcision. And that is to act like a seal on the people. It's a sign, a sign to point towards what the Lord has done for them. And it's a seal, like the the wax seal that you would have on a letter, and a signet ring is taken and pressed into it. It's a seal to mark the people out as being different. And so they are now under the covenant promise and blessing. The Lord distinguishes His people, and He does this to demonstrate His grace from one generation to the next. But perhaps you say to me tonight, well, what about that verse? Believe and be baptized. Surely that's the argument of infant baptism torpedoed. It's like a game of battleships, and I can turn around and say, I have sunk your battleship. A5, last and perfect torpedo. That's you. Argument over. Done. Settled. Well, let's think about it. Believe and be baptized. Let's look again at Genesis 17. Because in Genesis 17, look at what happens to Abraham. Abraham's given the covenant, and as he's give the co- as the covenant comes to him, he's also given this sign and seal. So for Abraham, there is faith, and then the sacrament, and for his children, notice how it inverts. It's the sacrament, and then faith. So let's let's get that clear. For Abraham, it's faith, then the sacrament. Circumcision comes, but for his children, that it now inverts. And it's the sacrament and then faith. It's what Paul, Paul picks us up in Romans 4 and verse 11 to say that he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So let's be really clear about this. Circumcision was not a sign of Abraham's faith, and it was not a sign of Isaac's faith. Rather, for both Abraham and his son Isaac, circumcision was a sign of God's righteousness. It was a sign that they had to look to by faith. And remarkably, Ishmael, the rebellious son, is also given this sign at his birth. He's also given this promise, this spiritual sign, and yet he walks away. So circumcision 
was not a simple equation. It didn't automatically mean that the recipient of the sign would be in possession of the thing signified. And so it is with baptism. Some children who are marked by baptism will one day rebel against their baptism and against who they've been brought up to be. They're marked as part of the church, and yet they throw off that clo- the clues that they've been given, and they rebel, just like Ishmael did. Now, children were marked as belonging to the covenant people, but unless they exercised saving faith, they could not hold on to all of these covenantal blessings. They couldn't grasp them. And therefore, it's crucial for us tonight to say that we do not believe that baptism saves an infant. It doesn't save an adult either. And we do not believe that baptism equates to regeneration. Because at baptism, it's not about the person. It's all about the grace and the mercy of the covenant-keeping God, what He has done. Now, the context for us in Northern Ireland is difficult. There's a guy, an Irish Presbyterian in the 19th century called Thomas Willerow. This is a new book. He's long gone, so he hasn't published this, but somebody's published it on his behalf. Thomas Willerow was writing on the back of the 1859 revival. So, a great blessing that comes across our land. But on the back of the revival, what happens is that lots of Presbyterian children who had been baptized now thought that they needed to be rebaptized as such. They needed to have a new baptism. And so Willerow writes against that and says, you do not, this is you coming into the knowledge of who you are, laying hold of the promises that were taken at the front of a church for you. And so because an infant then may opt out of the covenant, just like Ishmael did, that does not deem the entire sacrament redundant. A baptized baby may not claim their Christian identity. They may claim to rebel and walk away from God, but so may an adult who gets baptized whenever they're 25 or 45. They too may walk away from Christ. So just as Abraham believed and this sign and seal was given to his children, then let's see the continuity into the New Testament. If you're still in Acts, you can, you can flip up these with me, or you can, or you can just note them down. Uh, I'm going to rattle through them. Acts chapter 10. If the whole way through the Old Testament, this is for the covenant people and their family, the sign of circumcision, surely then we would expect to hear in the New Testament that the new sign, which is baptism, circumcision done away with, baptism now in place of it, surely we would expect to hear of households coming in and being baptized. Well, Acts chapter 10, what happens? Cornelius, his whole household is baptized. Isn't it wonderful? Then come with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, and we'll hear of two households being baptized. First of all, in verse 15, you'll see Lydia. Lydia is converted and her household are baptized. Then we see the Philippian jailer. He's converted, and his household are baptized. Do we see this? God's arms sweeping up households and people into his covenant love. Then come with me to Acts chapter 18 and verse 8. Crispus and his entire household are baptized. 
see this? Time and time and time again. Then come with me into 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 16, and you'll hear about the, high, the, the household of Stephanus also being baptized. And then in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 14, hear this. Children are deemed holy because of the faith of one parent. Now, what does that mean? It means that they're consecrated to God as Israel was holy, set apart, so to a child. So, what do we need to see in this? What do we need to sieve through and see? We need to see that on profession of faith of the head of the household, the head of the household repenting and believing, that was Lydia, it was also a mother in the absence of of a meal, Whenever the head repents and believes, they're brought under God's grace, and it's for them and for their household, for them and for their children and their children's children. See the continuity, God sweeping them in. It's amazing grace. People and their families coming under the sign and the seal of who our God is. And so Jason Holopoulos in his little book says this, baptism is a gift It's a gift of a kind father who loves to lavish good things upon his children. He's pouring this out upon his children. Those who repent and believe, it's for them and those who are under them. And so if you are a Christian parent here tonight and you have had your child baptized in this church or a different church, you should point your children to their baptism and explain it to them. Use it as a way to remind them of who they are in Jesus Christ, what he has done for them, and how they're to live. A sign pointing them towards the gospel of what Jesus has done and a seal of who they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I understand at this point there's been a lot of information. We're talking a lot of big terms and moving quickly. It takes time to put these blocks into place. And we've had a lot of information, foundations of baptism, the marks of baptism from circumcision into baptism. But now we're going to apply the covenant of grace. Hopefully you'll find this, as we, as we work it out, you'll start to see the traction that it gets in our lives. What's the first point of application? The first point of application is this. The covenant of grace reveals that children are so important to our God. He doesn't leave them outside in the cold. Instead, he brings them in. And what's, what's majestic about all of this is that God has ordained the family. God gives us each other, husbands and wives. And as a good gift, he may bless you with children. And so it's, it's no accident that God designs this as one of the primary methods to pass on the faith. Marriage is his idea. Reproduction is his idea. Children are his idea. Children are his gift. And so if he converts adults, is it any wonder that he brings the children under these blessings to bring them up in the ways of the faith? And so truly there is no greater privilege than raising the children of Christ's church. What does this look like? Imagine that I had a son, and if I had a son, I would really want him to support Manchester United. And some people are saying, why would you burden your son with that, right? Hopefully, it'll come good again, but work with me, right? So, if I have my son, 
What do I do? I buy him a little Manchester United jersey. It's a little sign of who he is, and he wears it. And then I put Manchester United logos all over his wallpaper in his room, and I buy him pictures of Manchester United. And then I, I take him along to Old Trafford. And as I take him along to Old Trafford, this little boy, he has no clue what's going on. He doesn't understand the offside rule. He has no clue about what's going on on the pitch. But he hears the songs. He hears the people. He sees the people. And he is part of this. And so for as long as he has ever known, what does he do? He grows up to be a supporter of Manchester United. That is who we are in this house. We support them. No one else. And so he gets it. He gets who he is. He's taught the songs as he matures. He's taught about the team and the history as he matures. He comes into a fuller understanding of all the rules of football and of the offside rule and of this and of that. See how he is nurtured and developed up? And so it is. Now, that's a totally insignificant illustration, but think how much more then with covenant children, with the children that the Lord gives to us. The psalmist says they're like arrows for us. They're gifts from him. And would he leave them outside of his blessing? Would he, would he say, no, you're, you're no longer part of me? I don't think that's what Scripture teaches. Because it's not the heart of our God. How do I know that? How am I basing that? Apart from a feeling, you might say, John, you just feel that that's what your God's. How do you know that? Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus took the children. And he forbid the disciples to keep them back from him. Come with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. You might say, but John, in Luke, why doesn't Jesus just baptize the babies? The little ones that come to him, why doesn't he do that? Well, Baptism hadn't yet been inaugurated as the sign of the new covenant. It's going to happen at Pentecost. But let's look at the principle. What does Jesus do? Luke chapter 18, and in verse 15, I'm reading from the ESV. Luke 18, verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to, them, called to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, shall not enter it. This word for infant here, it's the, it's the Greek word brethos, and it's used throughout Scripture to talk about the smallest of ones. And what do we see? Christ taking these little ones up in his arms. It's what Kevin DeYoung talks about in this passage as there's strong covenantal overtones. He takes them to himself. He blesses them. He brings them in. Doesn't cast them off. Why? Because the kingdom of God has always been for children, and it's still for children. Deuteronomy chapter 6, what does it say? You shall teach this to your children when they walk by the way, when you sit in the house, when you lie down, when you rise. Children to be nurtured as part of God's people. And so they deserve the sign and the seal of that covenant. What about the New Testament? 
Paul assumes that children will be in the assembly of God's people. Colossians 3.20, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, Romans 8, 17, Galatians 3.26, and we could go on. All references to children being part of the church. Infants. And so there's wonderful consistency here from old to new. Because in the church of Jesus Christ, little ones to him belong. Thomas Willerow, he has this beautiful illustration. And he goes on for pages and pages, but I'm going to try and distill it down. He has this beautiful image of a, of a landlord who owns a garden. And he owns this garden, and he decides that he will let the other people around the local area come in and use his garden. And so he welcomes all the local families, and all the families around this place, they come in and, and they, they go around this garden. Old people, little people, they're all in. And as time goes on, he decides, do you know what? I've got a little bit more room, so what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to expand this. I'm going to expand this garden into a huge park, and it's going to be for every citizen of this town. Anyone who's a friend of mine can come in and use this. And so all of the families start to come in and they use this park. All the citizens that live in this town use this beautiful park. But then one day, the gatekeeper changes. And you'll see a picture, it'll come up for us. The gatekeeper changes and suddenly this man and his wife and his little ones come to the gate and the gatekeeper says to them, you're not allowed in. Two adults, you can come in. The children, no, 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 you're not allowed in anymore. Well, you can imagine the response of the citizen. Well, 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 yesterday my children were allowed in. Yesterday we could enjoy this. Yesterday this was a beautiful blessing for us, but today you're telling me no. And so Wilro accuses this. He says to the gatekeeper, have you received instruction that my children may not be admitted? And the gatekeeper says, no, but I've been told that only friends can enter, not enemies. And the citizen says, well, you know these little children are too young to be friends, but that's a qualification only for their parents between us and the landlord. And the gatekeeper says, until they approve their friendship by acts, I will not admit them. It'd be madness, wouldn't it? Utter madness for them to have been in all the way for years after generation and generation and generation, and then suddenly the gatekeeper to say, no more. Your children are not allowed. And so Wilro goes on and on and on and on and goes back and forth, and then he says at the very end, and the gatekeeper was an Anabaptist. And you, you should, we all worked that out long ago, Wilro, before you even said that. But here's the thing, at the very moment, at the very moment in history when the Lord expanded the remits of the gospel, who was the gospel for now? To the very ends of the earth, for every people and tribe and tongue and nation, it had expanded. He opened up the gates, as it were. He said, I will build my church, and it will go forth, and it will never shrink. And at the very moment where the gospel is expanded out, would he rule children out of that? Children that had been in. Absolutely not. Imagine Jesus turning around and saying, this is not for you, little one. It's for people like you, but not for you. 
there would have been uproar. It would have been all across the epistles. Paul, imagine writing to Jewish churches where, where people were going absolutely nuts because at one moment their children were in, and now under this new progressive, expansive covenant, they're, they're not in. Surely we'd had, he would have had to have dealt with it. But I understand that for some reason, people do get nervous about infant baptism. They get nervous because they think that we are promising regeneration for this little one. Or, or they get nervous because they think that this is some form of just cultural tokenism. It's a nice thing to do. It has no basis in Scripture. That it's just a, a, a sort of hangover from, from the medieval age. There's no substance to it. It makes people nervous. But see with our covenantal spectacles on tonight. Let me read John 15. So as we think about the little ones, they're engrafted in to the body of Christ, okay? They're brought under the promises. John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch, and he withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If it makes you uneasy that little ones are brought in, that God throws his arms open wide and brings them in under the blessing of being brought up in a covenant family, and in a covenant church. John 15 should, should relieve those. Christ says, those who abide in me, they will bear fruit. Those who do not will be cut off and thrown into the fire. So what do we see with this? Baptism never stands alone from the gospel. Without the gospel, it's meaningless. This is, one person's described it as the, the jewel in the crown of, of the covenant. It's a beautiful doctrine, a warm doctrine, a, 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 a wonderful insight into who our God is. So let's think about it the other way around, and with this we're nearly done. What about Baptists? What about their theology? What does it look like for a Baptist in their home if they're consistent with their theology? Well, what does a Baptist say to their little boy or their little girl as they grow up? Can a mother or father start to teach the little one to pray the words of the Lord's Prayer, our Father? Well, to be consistent with Baptistic theology, they cannot. And if Baptist parents act in line with their convictions, they cannot let their child pray until they've had a moment of conversion. So in essence, what does Baptistic theology teach for the children of believers? It teaches that they're outside. 
that they're out in the cold, just like the pagans. They're unclothed, and they're not yet loved. And yet, what does covenantal theology say? It says that children are brought in with the people of God that they're taught to pray and to trust in Jesus from the earliest of age so that they may have this beautiful testimony. There was never a time when I didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. My mom or my dad, my, my grandparents, my church family, they, they nurtured me from the, the youngest of ages to know who I was. And I always just believed in Him. And these children are clothed in the blessing. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith says that it is a sin to neglect this ordinance in general and specifically. So why? Why would someone withhold this wonderful blessing from their children? I believe it truly is biblical. It's how God operates with families through the covenant, all established by His own Son, one story for one people. Would we leave our children outside of that? Here's a little illustration of how we could talk about baptism. Baptism is like this. And the picture, the final picture will come up. It's like a father who spreads a blanket over his children. Who brings them in under his roof. And sits them down at the far side of his promises. And as they rest and eat and as they grow, what does he do? The father whispers stories of love in their ear. And as they mature, he tells them of who they are, about how they bear this sign and this seal of what their elder brother Jesus has done for them. And as they grow strong under his nurture, as by faith they take hold of who their Savior is, their story is that there was never a time whenever they didn't believe in who they were. Now, some may throw off the blanket. Some may strip themselves of their family clothes and go out into the darkness, out into the cold, out into the wilderness. They can walk out, but they cannot escape the sign and the seal that they bear. And should this person die outside of the Father's house, they will face greater judgment for being the one who bears the seal and yet did not honor his father's name. And so the door is left open. The light is still on. His love is still available for you. Come and be clothed again in your family garments and know the love of your heavenly father. If that's you tonight, if you were baptized as a child, but you've rebelled, you've walked away, the door is still open, the light is still on, his love is still available. But if you've been baptized as a child and you've rebelled from the Lord and you bear the sign and the seal of Him and the good news of His gospel, you will face judgment because of the grace that has already been placed upon your life and you decided to rebel against it. Friends, baptism is a wonderful gift. It's a gift for the convert and for the children of converts. God's love and His mercy, and His provision for people. It's how Jesus, one of the ways that Jesus builds His church. And so we say we love Him. 
because He first loved us. Baptism is a gift. It's a sign and a seal of what the Lord has done for believers and for their children. Why would we keep little ones back from Him? Let the little children come on to me. Let's pray.